Good morning, church. Great to see you today. Thanks for uh, being here on time. There will be folks here in an hour or so, uh, but they'll be late. Is this Sunday? There's no snow. There's no ice. The sun is shining. What is going on? It feels like a Wednesday, or some, but not Sunday. The magic number is 11. 11 days till spring. It's got to be good. That's got to be good. Maybe up to 60 this week. Love it, love it. Well, this is uh, the second week now in this series called Transform. We're going to talk about our physical health today with specific emphasis on how to deal with stress. Now, here's a fact. Most Americans live with chronic stress. Not just occasional stress, but stress that never relents. And it has an effect on our bodies. It can mess with our mind. It can mess with our bodies, our physical health. Chronic stress can kill you. And today we want to look at the 23rd Psalm and consider this beautiful, uh, historic Psalm of David, which has served to comfort the millions of saints over the years, these centuries. And from this Psalm, we want to learn habits that we can employ to eliminate stress from our lives. And I think it could be really helpful to you. So, if you have your Bibles, thank you for turning to Psalm 23. If not, we're going to project the words on the screen for you. This is a Psalm of David. You will recognize it when you hear it. Uh, please stand as you're able to hear God's Word. And David writes, the, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever." May God inspire us today through these powerful words. You may be seated. You know, before we get to the outline in your bulletin today, let's just uh, consider some of the things that, that add stress to our lives. One, one thing is worry. You know, we worry about things today that we didn't have to worry about years ago. I mean, identity theft. Who worried about that? But you've got to be concerned about that. How about losing your cell phone? I mean, that, that's anxiety producing just thinking about it, right? Some of you just reach for your phone to make sure, oh yeah, I still have my phone. I mean, if you lost your phone, you'd have to change lives, you know, and go on to some other place with some other people. Your cell phone is your life. And losing it, it's just stressful. Uh, new worries come with a, a growing complex world. It's just the nature of things. Another thing is hurry, not just worry, but, hur but hurry. We, we have this microwave, nanosecond world we expect things, and we expect them immediately. Change is happening so quickly, we can't get our mind around one new uh, paradigm of change until the next paradigm emerges. And that kind of speed creates stress. Another is crowds. You may not be aware of this, but we have a growing urbanization of the populations of the world. In the United States, for example, 83% of Americans now live in major cities. 83%. You know, in 1800, there was only one city in the world that had a million people. That was London. Today, there are 500 cities in the world that have over a million people and thousands of cities that have a half a million people in them. The three largest cities in the world, think about this, the, the, the one is Mumbai, India, formerly Bombay, now Mumbai. I've been to Mumbai it is a city that sits on a landmass which is one-third the size of Los Angeles, California, and yet there are 32 million people who live there. It's crowded. Uh, Tokyo, for example, has uh, 36 million. Mexico City has 35 million people. I read one study that said in the 75 largest cities in America, last year Americans wasted over 4 billion hours waiting in traffic jams and wasted six billion gallons of gasoline. That's a stress. 
And so crowds create stress. Multiple choice in our world now creates stress. I mean, you go to the grocery store to buy a, a, a tube of toothpaste. Used to, you know, there were just three choices. You picked one, the one you liked. Now there's a whole row, shelf after shelf, of nothing but toothpaste. You got the minty fresh and the non-minty fresh. You got some toothpaste that has 12 or 14 added ingredients. It, it's, it's stressful. How do you pick these things out? And then there's cough syrup, the same problem. It used to be there were two brands of cough syrup. Pick one. But now half the store is full of cough syrup. And coffee at Starbucks, how many options are there? Possible options, thousands upon thousands. I just want a cup of coffee, but I can't choose. This indecision creates stress. I was on campus at Ball State this past week uh, talking in front of the Athletes in Action, Campus Crusade Athletes in Action. So these young athletes are there. And I was telling them uh, an account from my college days and described the, the television set that I had in my dorm room back in the day. And I said, you actually had to physically walk over to the TV and switch it on. Man, just like that, had to turn it on. And it, they were aghast. And, and not only that, but if you wanted to change the channel, you had to physically get up, move over to the TV, and, and switch the dial. Remember that? And picking a channel, that was no problem. There were only four. There was ABC, NBC, CBS, and, you know, some other local station in a UHF format. There were four. I mean, pick one. It's easy. The other day, I, was, I, I sat down to my satellite TV, and I just thought, I'm going to see what's on every one of the 400 stations I have available. <laughs> and I start scrolling and just going through it and reading and scrolling. Reading. I get to 400, and at the end of it, I go, there's nothing on. What is that? Indecision. Creates stress. Then there's a the loss of privacy. We're hearing more and more about this. And in our technological world, I mean, we know the government is listening and watching. Corporations now keeping their number on you. They want to know where you are, who you are, what you said, what you bought. Every time you buy something, now somebody rings it up and they're keeping a record of how many pampers you bought all the way through life to the end when you move to Depends. So that... <laughs> Folks know what you're buying. I mean, you go from a Hot Wheels to the wheelchair, and they know every detail in between. Scary. Stressful. Then there's pluralism. Think about this one. We now live in a world where people around you often have very different beliefs or convictions or lifestyles or cultures. You know, a hundred years ago in America, everyone was pretty much a homogeneous group. We all pretty much believed the same thing and had the same values. That's different now. You know, it's, we're called a melting pot, but it's really not that. It's more like a stew of all kinds of varieties of attitudes and worldviews and cultures and beliefs. And what this means to us is that, it, is that there's going to be conflict. Now, different isn't bad. Different is just different. But because of the differences, it creates, creates conflict and stress in relationships. And the media uh, feeds on this conflict and it's created this culture of incivility. People are becoming rude to each other. Discourse about divergent views have become uncivilized. The dialogue of dissent has become really harsh. And it's really stressful. I find this personally very stressful. Dealing with and speaking with and identifying, being sensitive to people who are different. That's, that's a hard thing for me and it creates stress. And our culture is full of that kind of distinction. Then the last thing I might mention is the fear of the future. You know, we have people who live their lives uh, with a what-if philosophy. What if this happens, or what if that happens, or what if this doesn't happen, or what if this happens to me? And so folks are afraid, and it creates stress in their lives. So let's, uh, let's consider this 23rd Psalm, because I think David, uh, in the metaphors, the images of this Psalm, gives us some really great ideas on how to cope with reducing our stress. So let's just get in. This is where you'll find uh, the, the fill-in-the-blanks on your outlines. Number one. Look to God to meet all my needs. Look to God to meet all of my needs. Now, this is the single most important thing you do to relieve stress. If you can employ this one practice, this discipline, it will dramatically reduce your stress probably more than anything else. What oftentimes happens to us is that we tend to place our, our, our hopes, our trust, our confidence 
in things that can be taken away from us. And it's not a good idea. Sometimes we place our confidence in our job or in our marriage or in our money. But listen, you can lose your job. You can lose your health. You can lose your reputation. You can lose your spouse. You can even lose your mind. But listen, you can't lose your relationship with Jesus. That's secure. God has a hold of you. And so that's your security. Psalm 23, verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd, so I have all I need. The Lord is my shepherd. I look to him to meet all of my needs. I have everything I need. Romans 8 says, Since God did not spare his own son for us, but gave him up for us, won't he also surely give us everything else we need? And that follows, doesn't it? That's reasonable. That's logical. If God wouldn't spare his own son to save us, doesn't it also follow that God will do everything necessary to meet our needs? And so we place our confidence and trust in God to meet my needs. Isaiah 30 verse 15 says, The sovereign Lord says, Only in returning to me and waiting for me will you be saved. In quietness and confidence is your strength. Quiet and confidence in God is your strength. Not anxiety, not fear, not hard work, not careful planning, not self-motivation, not a positive mental attitude, but he says in quiet and confident trust in God, that's where you find your strength. You want to reduce stress? Then look to God to meet your needs. I love uh, what David says, the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. Here's, here's the practical take home. The next time you feel yourself stressed out, overwhelmed, overworked, uh, underneath it, the next time you feel that kind of pressure, pray this prayer. It's very simple. Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. I shall not want. And it, and it will start letting the stress ooze right out of you. Here's number two. Next habit that reduces stress. And that is I need to obey God's instructions about rest. I need to obey God about this whole thing about rest. We, we work too much, we get in too much of a hurry, we feel like there's too much going on, our schedules get compressed, we get overwhelmed, there's, there's just too much. Let me ask you, do you ever get the feeling that I never feel like I'm caught up? Anyone besides me? I just, I never feel like, oh, there, now, I'm caught up, ah, feels good, uh, I don't have to do anything more right now. That, that's a real stress producer uh, for me. And so here's what we need to do about this. We need to understand that God created us to need rest. Why did he do that, do you think? I think it's because it's a value with God. It's an important feature of who he is and, and who he has made us to be. I mean, he could have made us not to need sleep. And we live 60, 70, 80 years, and a third of it, we're sleeping. Some of you, longer than that, more than that. I've seen you sleep. And you're sleeping right now, for example, and I don't... <laughs> you need to wake up. But why would, why would God build a third of our lives to be sleeping? I think it's because this is an important value. You know, God created, in six days, created the whole universe. And on the seventh day, he rested. Now, why did he do that? Was it because he was all tuckered out? You know, God goes six days, you know, building the universe and goes, whoo, boy, wow, whoo, I'm so tired. I'm going to have to sit down for at least a day. <laughs> Listen, it's not because God needed the rest. It's because God wanted to model for us the importance of this value. It's, a, it's an important thing. And so he put it in the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments. You know, he says, uh, don't covet, don't steal, don't lie. And uh, by the way, one day in seven rest. It's called the Sabbath. And people think, well, it's all legalistic and God's just forcing us to, you know, sit down when we don't want to sit down. We've got things to do and places to go and people to see. And why in the world should I sit down? But Jesus came along and he clarified it for us. And he said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So God didn't create the Sabbath so it would be another hoop for us to jump. He created the Sabbath for our benefit because he knows we need it. And rest is important. It was his idea. You know, uh, in Psalm 23, verse 2, this is what it says. He makes me lie down. He makes me lie down. Could I get a testimony today from anyone in the room who could tell the rest of us 
that if you don't rest your body, then your body will essentially at some point insist that you take a rest? If you don't, your body will make you. He makes me lie down. He makes me lie down. You know, sheep aren't smart enough to lay down for themselves. So the shepherd has to say, time to lay down now. Time to rest. And so we've got to do it. We've, we've, getting enough sleep is essential to stress management. Let me put this on the screen. You maybe want to write it down in your notes. My best requires rest. It really does. The Sabbath is outlined in Exodus 34, 21. Six days are set aside for work, but every seventh day you must rest completely. Even during your seasons of plowing and harvest, you must observe a Sabbath rest. So even when you're busy, God said you've got to take time for rest. Some of you are tax preparers, tax accountants. It's, your, it's tax season. And you're, you're, right now, you're stressed out because you go, I don't even have time to be in church right now. I should be working. Wait a minute. The Bible says even in your busy time, seed time and harvest, you've got, you've got to rest. You have to take time. Some of you are retailers. Christmas is your big season. You know you've got to hit it and get it. It's Christmas time. Well, listen, the Bible says even when you're the most busy, you've got to take time for rest. It's very important. You say, what am I supposed to do on my Sabbath? This usually comes from folks who are still young and vital, and they don't like the idea of resting. Here, let me give you three practical ideas. Number one, you need to rest your body. Rest your body. The biblical basis for a good Sunday afternoon nap is right there. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. Now, doing it right now, it's not the best, not the best idea. Catch up your, the hour of sleep you lost last night later this afternoon. Yeah, rest your body. Then refocus your spirit. That's what you're doing right now. You're in worship. Corporate worship ennobles you and re refreshes you and revives you and helps your emotional state. So you're refocusing your spirit. And that's the third thing, recharge my emotions. And that's what happens when you rest and kind of uh, do something out of the routine to to get your interest that way so that it stimulates you and refocuses you and recharges your emotions. So all of us need beauty. We need diversion. We need a different pace. Sometimes it's a hobby. Sometimes it's a sport. Those kinds of things. And it really doesn't matter what day of the week you choose as your Sabbath. Just so you take one. Now for most folks, Sunday's a good day to choose because of the rhythms of your, of your week. But I can tell you, Sunday's not a Sabbath for me. Sunday's a work day for me. This is serious work. And Saturday is a work day for me too, as far as that goes. And I told you last week, I don't take Mondays off because I don't like being that depressed on my day off. I get PMS every Monday, that, that post-message syndrome. So I take Fridays. Friday is my Sabbath. And so I try to disconnect and disengage and relax uh, on, on Friday. And you say, well, I just, I just feel guilty when I relax. Can I get a witness? Anyone like that? I feel bad when I relax. Well, let me just say this. Jesus didn't. He didn't feel bad. He actually told his disciples one day, this is in Mark's gospel, he said, listen, guys, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go away by yourself to a lonely place and rest a while. Unquote. That's in the Bible. How nice is that? We see Jesus setting himself apart Many, many times in the Gospels, he set himself apart to pray. He got away from the crowds, went to the wilderness he, for solitude. He, he, he was constantly conferring with God uh, in the context of loneliness and isolation so that he could rest and decompress from the stresses of his busy life. So you have to, you have to come apart from the routine. If you don't come apart, then you'll come apart. And so rest is really, really important. Heard about a guy who said to his pastor, Pastor, I tried to get a hold of you all day on Monday. Pastor said, I'm sorry, that's my day off. The man said, well, the devil, devil never takes a day off. And the pastor just punched him. No, no, that's not, that's not what happened. <laughs> I just, I can't resist adding my own punchline to that, but... Actually, the story goes like this. The pastor said, yeah, and if I didn't, I'd be just like the devil. And that's probably right. 
That's why some of you are so mean. You don't get enough rest. You're surly. Yeah, just like this morning. Yeah. So I, I look to God to meet all my needs. The Lord is my shepherd. And I obey God's instruction about rest. He makes me lie down. Now here's the third thing on your outline. Recharge my soul with beauty. This is a great stress reliever. Recharging my soul with beauty. Beauty is an incredibly important thing in stress management. Beauty inspires. It encourages. It motivates. It stirs up positive emotions. Have you ever thought about why God made the world so beautiful? I mean, why didn't he make the earth just like a moonscape? You know, everywhere you look, it's all the same. It's all gray. It's all bland. Instead, we have this magnificent planet that God allows us to live on. And it's spectacular. The sunrises and the sunsets and the mountainscapes and the waterfalls and the spectacular flowers, this vibrancy, this verdancy, this, this in, incredible transformative kind of color pattern. It's an amazing place. Why do you think God made the world so spectacular? I think, I think it's because he wants us to understand how important it is to be revived by things that are beautiful, by sounds that are beautiful, by creativity, and by all the things that, that make the earth so special. Beth and I were in San Francisco area a couple of years ago. I was, I was doing a camp during the week, and we had a day off, and I, we, we went to one of the local uh, national forests where these huge redwood trees grow. Some of you have seen these trees. They're unbelievable. You know, Some of them just several feet, 10, 12, 15 feet in diameter, and 2,000 years old. They had a cross cut and, and showing, showing this in the, in the lodge there. And this particular tree was 2,010 years old. So that, you know, these, some of these trees were alive when Jesus walked the earth. Magnificent uh, trees, 200 and 300 feet tall. The tallest one, 326 or 29 feet tall. Uh, just awesome. We got on a train that went through this forest and they would make regular stops for special occasions, special trees and clusters of trees. We got into this one area, and, and there were about 10 of these redwoods in a perfect circle, all stretching up hundreds of feet. And they reported that dozens of weddings are performed in that particular location. They call it the cathedral. And indeed, you stand in the middle of these trees and look up in the canopy over you, and it, it's, it's like a sacred place. And the guy that was on the train with us, a total stranger, he said, I feel so close to God in nature. Just said that to me. And I looked to him and I said, of course you do. It's because he created it. I mean, the thumbprint of God is all over this. This is amazing. And it should draw you close to God. A man was made to live in a garden, not a skyscraper. I mean, some of the major cities of the world now, there's nothing but concrete. You can walk for miles and miles and miles and touch nothing but concrete. That's not the way God made us to live. He made us to live in a garden. And we've come a long way from the Garden of Eden. You feel close to God in nature. And it's because God made it. it it's beautiful and it inspires. Beauty motivates. Psalm 23, 2 and 3. He makes me lie down. Where does he make me lie down? He makes me lie down in lush green meadows. Can you see the golf course? And leaves me beside calm, quiet waters. Right next to the sand trap there. <laughs> it's no wonder that Psalm 23 is the most beloved psalm because we can all visualize this one, can't we? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. It's therapeutic just to hear those words, isn't it? And to imagine, visualize that place. So you need beautiful scenes. You need beautiful sounds. These inspire and motivate. Let me give you some practical steps on how to, how to recharge your soul with beauty. One, get outside every day. Get outside. Get in the backyard. Go around the block. Take your lunch outside. When the weather permits this, make an effort to get outside. Notice the trees. Listen to the birds singing. And just a few weeks when you see the flowers start to pop up, admire the beauty that's around you. And it will inspire you. The second thing is start, start the day with God and not the media. Before you check your text messages, turn, turn to your email, flip on the TV, before you do any of that, start your day connecting with God. You know, the first seven minutes of your day will set the tone for your whole day. 
And if you'll connect with God first thing, before you start listening to all the bad news, it will really reduce your stress. Beth and I actually set our alarm clock on a Christian radio station, so every morning we wake up with either some kind of worship song or someone talking about the Scripture. And it just is a good thing. It helps. Here's the third thing. Intentionally put beauty around you. Pieces of art, special music that inspires you, maybe a craft that you've worked on. Looking at beauty lowers your stress. Listening to beautiful sounds lowers your stress level. So I, so I encourage you to do that. You, you're most like the creator when you're being creative. So engage, engage the beautiful parts of your life. Do you, did you know that there are, there are more songs that have been written about Jesus than any other subject in human history? Did you know that more books have been written about Jesus than any other subject in human history? That doesn't surprise you, does it? Did you know that more art has been created about the Bible and the stories of the Bible to honor and glorify God and Jesus than any subject in history? wonder why, why that is. See, God gave us music and God gave us art so that we could express our emotion, so that we could be really alive, so that we could eliminate the stress and really connect at a, at a full level, as a whole person, with who God is. It's a wonderful gift. You know, by the way, art and music are two of the greatest arguments against evolution. Evolution, in its purest form, basic form, suggests that, that we've, we're all here because we survived as the fittest on the jungle floor, the survival of the fittest. But let me tell you something. Art and music aren't necessary for survival. So why does it exist? Why is there so much beauty, so many lovely sounds, so much beautiful art? Why so much creativity from human beings if we've just evolved from the jungle floor? Where's that come from? What's that about? It's because men and women are the co-bearers of the image of Almighty God who has created us in His image. And God is a creative God, and He loves beauty, and He loves music, and he loves the things that allow us to express our emotion in worship and praise to him and to appreciate the beauty that he has surrounded us with. And there's a reason for it. Philippians 4.8 says, You'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on these things, things that are true, things that are noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious, worth repeating, the best, not the worst, the beautiful, not the ugly. Listen, ugly causes stress. Beautiful relieves stress you know some of you during these 50 days of transformation could I just challenge you you need to fast the news I'm, I'm about to I'm about to break break some news to you if you don't watch the news for 50 days listen it won't change one thing in the world you knowing or not knowing about the news will not change a single thing What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. How about listen to God? Listen to his word. Listen to worship songs. And your stress will definitely go down. So recharge your soul with beauty. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Here's number four. Go to God for guidance. The number one question I get in pastoral ministry over the years, the, there's not a close second. The, the single most frequently asked question that I get in pastoral leadership is simply this. How can I know God's will for my life? How do I determine God's best plan for my life? People ask the question in different ways, but it's far and above the most prevalent concern that people have. It, and it's important because indecision in life really is stressful. You're at the crossroads of your life. You have a major decision to make, and you're not sure what God wants you to do. That's incredibly stressful. And so here's my advice to you. Go to God for guidance. You might want to put this in your notes. God will guide you at the right time in the right way. God will guide you at the right time in the right way. I was just in the car with, with Beth, my wife, this past week. And I, maybe I was thinking about this message, but, but I, this thought came to my mind. And I just asked her this question. And I, and I wrote it down. So it's all verbatim how I ask her. I said, name one time with regard to major life-changing crossroads moments in our personal or professional lives when we made a wrong decision. 
Now let, now let me undergird that question with the knowledge that Beth and I were both Christians. We were both followers of Jesus before we got married. And so we got married on the basis of our faith. We, we made covenant together on the basis of our faith. And so we have lived our lives these 37 years on the basis of our covenant connection with God. So at every turn in our life, we have actually paused and said, God, what do you want us to do? James said, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives graciously and liberally and won't, and won't, and won't complain about it along the way. So God is actually willing and available to guide us and to direct our, our paths. We just need to look to him for this guidance. Now, there's a process involved, and, and we could teach on that for a little while, and, this, and, and we do help people understand God's best plan. And Beth and I have always submitted to God and his will these major decisions. And so here we are after, after being together now nearly 40 years, and we can say without any hesitation, that doesn't mean all of the little decisions and nuances that we've made are all perfect. You know, everybody wishes they had some things to do over. But with regard to these major moments, these crossroads, you know, this decision today is going to affect me five years from now, ten years from now, it may affect the rest of my life. So, so if I don't get this one right, there are going to be consequences. Those major choices like that. Beth and I, our story is we've always consulted God, and as I said, God has been faithful to guide us. And we've never made a wrong decision in those major moments. Wow. That's really, that's really a good thing. That's really good. Because we could, we could get some testimony today in the room about folks who said, you know, I was at a crossroads once and I didn't ask God. You know, I asked my friends and I, I listened to the pundits on TV and I checked out MTV and, you know, kind of the, what, what all my peers were saying. And I, and I just went, kind of went with my heart, you know, did what I felt was best, you know. You know, just kind of go with my heart. If I hear one more people, person say that, I'm going to... I think I'm going to vomit. Don't, listen, don't trust your heart. No matter what Oprah says, don't trust your heart. The Bible teaches that the human heart is deceitful and wicked beyond all else. You can't trust yourself, but you can trust God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he will be faithful to you. What do you mean I can't trust my instinct? Mm-hmm. Because listen, the will of God doesn't always feel good. But it is always good. The will of God is rarely easy. But it's always good. The will of God is rarely the path of least resistance. You know, kind of get in the flow with everybody else. But it's always good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, that wasn't in my notes. That was all free. Here's number five. Here's number five. Trust God in the dark valleys. Gosh. The valleys get dark sometimes, don't they? You lose your job. You lose your income. You lose your money. You can lose your health. You lose your reputation. You lose a loved one. Everybody understands loss. And there are two human emotions, reactions that come to these major losses. One is grief and the other is fear. Now listen to, listen to your pastor. Grief is good. Fear is bad. Grief is good. Fear is bad. The Bible actually says that God grieves. Grieving is a godly emotion. Grieving is necessary. And, and the temptation in the context of a major loss is to stuff your grief and try not to deal with it because it's so painful and it hurts so much and it feels like it's going to kill you. But it won't kill you. It will actually help you to process and to move through the transition of that loss into God's next best plan for you. And so grief is good, and I encourage you to embrace your grief. There are people in this room today, you've, you lost someone 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and you still haven't dealt with the grief of that, and you've been stuck emotionally and relationally because you won't let yourself go there. And I encourage you, let that out. Not once in the Bible does it say, grieve not, or sorrow not, or weep not, or cry not. All of those things are actually encouraged because it's really therapeutic. It's good for you. Now, fear, on the other hand, that's bad. The Bible does say, fear not. And it actually says, fear not, 365 times 
in the Bible. That's one, that's one for every day of the year. Fear not. Psalm 23, verse 4. David said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Some of you are going through the valley of the shadow right now. You are. Maybe it's death. Maybe it's debt. Maybe it's conflict, depression, discouragement. You're in the valley of the shadow. Well, let me remind you, shadows are scary. They really are. But shadows can't hurt you. Think about that. And shadows are always bigger than the source. Mm -hmm. It's your fear of that greater than the actual event. Shadows are always bigger than the source and makes them look bigger than they really are. And that's how you go through the valley of the shadow of death. That's how you lower the stress. Trust God in the dark valleys. Trust Him. Psalm 142, verse 3, when I'm ready to give up, he knows what I should do. When I'm ready to give up, he knows how to help me. Maybe you'll want to write this down on your outline. I'll put it on the screen. I don't have to know the answers when I know God. Trust God in the dark places. Here's number six, two to go. Number six, let God be my defender. Conflict, opposition, criticism, attacks. Let me just say something that all of you already know. There are people in your life who simply don't like you. <laughs> Sometimes there are people you work with, they criticize you maybe out of jealousy, maybe out of fear. Maybe there are people in your own family who will not let you enjoy anything. They're always ragging on you. They're always putting you down. They never have a positive word. If you have success, they poo-poo it. They downplay it. They minimize it. Don't, don't raise your hand. <laughs> You've, you've had these people in your lives, they're always attacking, they're putting you down, they're criticizing you. Now what happens when people push on you like that and poke on you like that? What's the natural instinct? Natural instinct is to turn and reciprocate, isn't it? Poke them back, criticize back, retaliate back, get even. But when you get even with somebody who's criticizing you, listen, all it does is put you down on the same level with them. If you forgive them, it puts you above them. But if you get even, you're no better than they are. And I mentioned this issue of pluralism earlier in the, in the message. In our society, we have people around us all the time who totally disagree with us. People who don't agree with you, don't like you, maybe don't like Jesus. And as a result, they criticize you and they put you down. But in our society where civilization is losing its civility, the world is getting more rude. Would you agree with that? The world's getting more rude. One of the things that's causing that is the internet because you can go online right now and just anonymously say anything you want. And when you're not face-to-face -face with someone, somehow that emboldens people and they just get really nasty and really mean. And they, they will spout off and minimize you or belittle you or be rude to you or criticize you, attack you on the internet. And all they're doing is revealing the smallness of their heart, the, the littleness of their personhood, you know, the... You know, the little pebble, which is their character. Let me just say it this way. Little people be little people. Little people be little people. But great people make other people feel great. So you want to be a little person, you want to be a great person. Mm -hmm. So when somebody's always belittling other people, they're just revealing the smallness of their heart. So how do you handle people who are rude to you? How do you handle people who are mean to you? And here's the answer. And by the way, you are now listening to someone who is an expert in this category. Uh, lots of practice. I actually know what I'm talking about. How do you handle people who are mean to you? And here's the answer. You don't. Now that's counterintuitive. You'll have to let that, you'll have to let that sit for a minute. You don't. You let God handle them. Let God be my defender. You let God take care of that. Listen now. Always resist the temptation to defend yourself. Now, if you, if you have sinned, if you have offended someone and you know it, then by all means, go and make a sincere apology. You messed up, then own up to that. That's all good. That's appropriate. But if you're just being impugned, your character's been assassinated, 
people are attacking you and you don't, you don't even understand it. You don't even know why sometimes. You know, what did I do? And they're telling lies about you. They're telling stories about you. The instinct is to say, wait a minute, that's not the truth. Let me tell you what the truth is. This is my side of the story. I, you need to hear this so that you'll get the right perspective on all this. But listen, that's, that's a wrong instinct. Let God be your defender. Resist the temptation to, de to defend. But always try to resist that natural tendency to tell your story and to defend yourself to your critics. Now, King David was a professional at this. Do you remember his story? King David was just the smallest guy in his family, the youngest. He was the runt in the family, remember? And Samuel, the, the prophet priest, came to his house one day and said, God has spoken to me. The next king of Israel is in this house. And so they went through the whole rank of all these boys. Finally, Samuel said, you got any more of these boys? He said, I guess there's one more. He's the, he's the runt. Well, go get him. And little David comes in. He's just a ruddy, handsome little guy. And Samuel sees him and he says, that's him. He's the next king of Israel. He pours oil over his head and anoints him as king. Well, it, it, this was like a private meeting. This is in the living room. Nobody knew it. Nobody saw it. Nobody understood it. And so David now becomes a threat to the current king who was Saul, and Saul tried to kill him. You remember this story. David, for years and years, ran for his life. These great men, these mighty men surrounded David, and they wanted revenge, and they, they wanted their pound of flesh, and they, they, wanted, they wanted to give back what Saul had been dishing out. But David said, no, no, that's not the way we live. That's not the way we're going to handle this. And, and all the way to this moment, you remember the story. David actually found himself in a cave, and King Saul is asleep in the cave, and David now is standing over his arch enemy who he's been running from for his life for years from. And David has a spear in his hand and his enemy at his feet, asleep. And with one stroke, his problems could have been over. But instead, David thought to himself, this isn't my work. God is my defender. I don't have to defend myself. I don't have to protect myself. God is in control of my life. If God wants to elevate me, that's his business. If God wants to demote me, that's his business. I belong to him. I, this, isn't my, this isn't my deal. And he walked out of there and did not touch Saul. David's men couldn't believe it. And David said, far be it for me to touch the anointed one of God. Wow, what a lesson that is. Remember Jesus? Jesus before his accusers? They're calling him every name in the book. They're, they're calling him a liar. They're calling him a devil. They're calling him a... Uh, the son of the devil, they call him a glutton, they call him a drunk, a false leader, a false prophet. On and on these things go. Here's what David says. Psalm 23, verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. You ever wondered what that means? Here's what this means. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over in the presence of my accusers, in the presence of my enemies. The blessing of God will flow to you if you'll handle this right. If you'll allow God to be your defender. Psalm 18, verses 1 and 2, David says, How I love you, Lord. You are my defender against criticism, against everything else. My protector and my strong fortress. In you I am safe. You protect me like a shield. So David understood. He's saying, look, I'm going to prepare a banquet for, for you, David, in the presence of your enemies. Let me tell you two things it takes not to defend yourself with your critics. Number one, it takes faith because you have to place your trust in God. I'm going to let God be my defender. In the meantime, let's just go out back. Wait a minute. <laughs> Those don't work together. I'm going to let God handle this. And it, so it takes faith takes trust. Let me tell you the second thing it takes. It takes humility. Because when you know people are accusing you falsely and they're saying things that aren't true and they're, they're implying things about you that just aren't accurate, boy, it takes incredible humility not to push back on that. Jesus stood before Pilate. Pilate said, listen, pal, they're accusing you of insurrection. They're accusing you of all kinds of things. They're saying that you want to overthrow Rome. You want to take my job. What do you have to say about that? The Bible says he opened not his mouth. 
Pilate got incensed. What is the matter with you? Don't you know I have the power to take your life, to have you crucified? Why don't you defend yourself? I could kill you, you know. Only then did Jesus speak. And he looked at Pilate and he said, No, no, you've got that wrong. The only authority you have over me is the authority I give you. So don't pretend that you have authority to take my life. The only way that my life is taken is if I lay it down. Mm. It's a perspective. Let me tell you a little secret that I have learned from experience. When you do this, when you trust God to be your defender, when you do it, you actually end up gaining more power, more authority, more influence, more anointing than you had before. Your critics actually end up helping you. They think they're hurting you by criticizing you, but when you respond correctly, it actually helps you. Because when people criticize you unjustly, falsely, and they say all kinds of mean things about you, Jesus said, blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil, falsely for my sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Your reward in heaven is great. Peter had a good way of saying it, 1 Peter 4.19. So if you are suffering according to God's will, keep on doing what is right and trust yourself to the God who made you, for he will never fail you. <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's for grown-ups, that point right there, to re relieve the stress from critics. Here's the last thought. This is for folks who fear the future, the what-if kinds of persons. Number seven, expect God to finish what he starts. Expect God to finish what he starts. Maybe you're a whatever. What if, what if this happens? What if this went wrong? What if that went bad? What if? David said in Psalm 23, 6, Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. <laughs> a shepherd in first century would often lead the sheep, of course, and when he was moving the sheep to another grazing area, he would also often have a dog or two. And the dogs would always come up from behind. So the shepherd would lead out in front of the flock, but the dogs would be at the back protecting from the rear. We could call them goodness and love. Surely goodness and mercy, goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. See, this is the promise of God. If you'll follow the shepherd, then he'll protect you. He'll keep you safe. For people who fear the future, this is hard for you. You say, what if it goes wrong? What if I don't have enough money? What if I lose my job? What if he walks out on me? What if, what if? But here's what the Bible says. Surely goodness and mercy, mercy and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How do you lower your stress? Well, you say, I'm going to expect God to finish what he starts. And even if everything went wrong in my life, here's what I know for sure, I'm still going to heaven. I mean, for Christians, I mean, this is, this is, really, this is really how we dispel the fear of the future and really come to terms with the, the elimination of our stress. Because even if every, just imagine everything go, that can go wrong will go wrong. Everything bad that can happen will happen. Worst case scenario. Assume that's true. Nevertheless, we're all going to heaven. You're going to heaven. We're going to heaven. We're going to a place where eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the hearts or imaginations of man what God has in store for them that love him. We're going to heaven. We are going to spend eternity in the eternal kingdom of almighty God in a place that defies description and imagination. I mean, how bad can it be? We're going to heaven. And soon. I mean, just a few more days. And we'll be there. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for the sake of his name. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. 
for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I don't know what burden you're carrying today. I don't know what trouble you're facing. But the last verse on your outline says it this way. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary, carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Friends, could I encourage you today? Cast all of your cares upon him. He cares for you. Let him come up underneath the weight of your burden. Let him help you carry it. Jesus doesn't have any problems, so he's willing to share yours, to lead you in the ways everlasting. You have a problem? Give it to him. You have stress? Offer it to him. You have a load that's heavy? Let him help you carry, and God will give you rest. Let's pray for just a moment. Would you bow your heads? Lord, I know there are many people who are tired and worn by the pace of modern living, stressed out by worry and fear and conflict and criticism. There's indecision. There's rudeness of the people around us, crowded schedule, overworked, all these different things. So friends, now let me just pray for you. Pray for us. I'll say the words. You receive them in your heart. Dear God, I look to you to meet all of my needs. I know that there's no person that could possibly meet all of my emotional, spiritual, mental, physical needs. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. God, starting today, I'm going to obey your instructions about rest. You make me lie down in green pastures. Help me to fill my soul and my surroundings with beauty, with art, with music that you have given for the expression of emotions. Thank you that you make me lie down in green meadows and beside calm, quiet waters. Father, those things that I don't know what to do and I'm confused, I lack wisdom, help me to go to you for guidance. Father, I need your wisdom in the days ahead. When I go through the dark valleys, help me not to be afraid of the shadow, but to turn to the light and look into your eyes, Jesus. And when I'm ready to give up, you know what I should do. Father, when I feel like I'm under attack and when I feel like others are against me, would you be my defender? Help me to speak no words of unkindness, but to return good for evil, to pray for those who persecute, to love those who hate, to do good to those who do evil. Would you be my defender, my protector, my fortress? Would you protect me like a shield? And let me trust you. And God, I'm going to expect you to finish what you start in me. Rather than what ifing. The future, I'm going to say, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus, you said to come to you, so I come to you. I want to take your yoke on me. I want to team up with you. I want to learn from you. I want to move forward in the direction and the pace that you choose. Slow me down, Lord, that I may see your plan for my life. So Jesus Christ, I invite you to take over every area of my life and my mind. Replace my stress with your serenity. And we pray these things in the wonderful name of Jesus. And everyone said,